Uh, Father, as we open the book of Job, uh, will you enlighten our eyes and open our ears that we might see what you're doing, your kind ways, your good gifts that you give in our darkest moments and in the midst of difficult pain. Lord, we ask that you would meet us in this narrative today. You would help us. You would work in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you are visiting with us or if you have missed the last Sunday or two, I have some bad news for you. You have just jumped on a moving freight train. We are rocking along. We are, we are screaming down the tracks in our study of the book of Job. And it can all be a bit disorienting, especially if you've missed uh, a couple of weeks or if you're uh, just brand new to all this. So I'm going to do what no preacher has done before. I'm going to give you Job in one sentence. Okay, you ready? This is what the book of Job is all about. I've got to read it because it's, it's packed. The book of Job is God's best-selling book about how suffering reveals the most important aspects of our hearts and reinforces the worth, goodness, and justice of God so that Satan's blasphemous accusations are thwarted and so that we might worship him, trust his goodness, and submit to his righteous ways in all circumstances. There you go. Did you get all that? Should I read it again? Okay, here we go. The book of Job is God's best-selling book about how suffering reveals the most important aspects of our hearts. And it reinforces the worth, goodness, and justice of God so that Satan's blasphemous accusations are thwarted and so that we might worship him, trust his goodness, and submit to his righteous ways in all circumstances. So that, that's the theology of the book in terms of what God has for us in it. The challenge is that comes to us in a real, live, historic account of a real man and his friends. Uh, you know uh, by now, um, if you're familiar with the book of Job, that it's about this, this righteous, godly man that has a great life and great family and everything's just going great. And one day he loses everything. Uh, he loses his kids, he loses his prosperity, he loses his animals, he loses his servants, he loses his land and, and what, ha- what really was his sustenance, right? His retirement, his ability to, to maintain life. And then the next day or so, he loses his health and he develops this skin disease that afflicts him to where he's banished outside of the city in the, the city trash heap where he is left to die alone. We learn early on in the in the book that all of that happens not so much because of anything in Job's life, but because of an accusation that Satan brings to God about why his people worship him. And that sets up, uh, that sets up the book as we have come to see it. Now, uh, again, just want to remind you that the book of Job is really designed to help us to see three essential themes, the theme of worship, the theme of suffering, and the theme of justice. And in God's kind wisdom, what he did was he wrapped each of those themes around different characters in the book. So, for example, Satan is the person that has a deficient view of worship. And so that topic is tied to his accusation and ultimately the thwarting of his ways 
as we see that worship is about worshiping God for who he is, not about just the benefits that he brings. Suffering, that theme and prosperity and and how God works in that, is really wrapped around the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's three friends. They have the faulty view of suffering, and so the book is designed to expose their wrong view so that we can see how God really works in suffering. And the third theme is the theme of justice, the third circle there. That's tied to Mr. Job himself because Job... Job is the one in the book that has a wrong view of justice. In fact, we're going to see uh, uh, this morning that that Job is actually going to accuse God of being unjust in his affliction. Now, this is not just a nice lesson about three topics that you may or may not care about. Each of those themes connects with the nature and character of God, and he is the main character of the book. And I hope you see that. Worship connects with God because it asks the question, why do we worship God? Is he worthy of our worship? And so getting that question right is very important and says something about our view of God. The issue of suffering connects with the character of God because in our suffering, we're prone to ask questions like this. Is God good? Is he gracious? And that connects with our suffering and points to what we think of God as well. The issue of justice connects with suffering and the character of God because in our affliction, we often wonder, is God being fair to me? Is he, is he doing the right thing in my suffering? And so that, that answers the question, is God righteous? Is he really a just and fair God? So you can see how those three themes are connected to the, to the characters in the book, but they ultimately connect to the character of God which is what the book is really about. Now, right in the middle, you can kind of see it fainting in the middle there, is Mr. Job. He's at the intersection of all three of those circles because he is living out the realities of what God is going to show us in the book. Now, um, we started last time what we call the debate section, and this is an area of the book where it is very easy to get lost in the detail and particularly in the poetic dialogue. So in chapters uh, chapters 4 through 31... This is what we're going to see. Eliphaz talks, Job responds. Bildab talks, Job responds. Zophar talks, Job responds. And that cycle is going to repeat three times. So it's actually very logically laid out in the book. Just when you're reading it, you just have to stop and ask the question, now who's who's talking and who's he talking to? And if you can remember that, that will help you to kind of get through that, that difficult section we call the dialogue or the debate section. Um, that cycle is very predictable. Of course, Zophar, you remember, Zophar is going to skip his third turn. Uh, he, he takes his toys and goes home because he, he's so uh, frustrated by the whole thing. He's not going to convince Job. Um, but other than that, very predictable. That's the cycle. So what are we going to do today? Today, we are going to jump in with both feet into this dialogue section. And I would encourage you to read it because we're not going to be able to, to do real justice to everything that's there today. But hopefully we can draw out the most important themes. And the themes that I want to draw out for you today, we could call them three dynamics of suffering. We're going to look at ministry to sufferers. We're going to think about vulnerabilities when we're in suffering. And we're going to think thirdly about God's redemption in suffering. Okay? My name's Keith. I will be your tour guide. Open your Bible and turn with me to the book of Job, to Job chapter 4. And the first theme that we want to look at in our time today is learning about ministry to suffering people. One of the things that God has for us in this book is to recognize that there is a right and a wrong way to minister to people in suffering. And I think we learn a lot as we watch this story unfold. 
Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Eliphaz, Job's first friend, steps in. Uh, By the way, we actually find out later in the book, Eliphaz is the oldest, which is probably why he goes first in that culture. That would have been appropriate. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered. He's talking to Job now. Job has just cried out in anguish in chapter 3. We saw that last week. Eliphaz responds, verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Now let's stop right there. Is that a good approach to take for your suffering friend? You're looking at me like, tell me, I don't know. No, the answer is no. That's not the approach to take. And and, and right out of the gate, we have to ask, why would he say that? What what on earth would, would lead him to do this? I mean, if making an accusation is the first thing that comes out of your mouth to a suffering friend, you probably have a heart problem. You have a heart problem. And I think that's, that's really the first thing we want to see here, and we see it throughout the book. Address your own heart before you try to help others. Address your own heart before you try to help others. Now, let me just, let me just develop this for you a little bit. Uh, by the way, I'm going to take you all over the book of Job today. You are going to be tired of turning in your Bibles by the time we're done. So if you want to just sit back, relax, and listen, I will read it to you. That's awesome. If you want to follow along, I will try to give you enough time to just flip over there real quick or click over there on your iPad or however you're accessing the Word of God. You can follow along or listen. Your choice. Look down at chapter 8. Chapter 8 now. Verse 1. Friend number 2. Bildad steps in. The Shuhite. He answers and says... Chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things, talking to Job, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? What's that? Talk to me. What is that? That's sarcasm. You're just going on and on and on. You're like the blowing wind, Job. Really? Look down at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Verse 1, Zophar, friend number 3 steps up, the Namathite, and he answered, chapter 11, verse 2, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? They're put off by the magnitude of his words, and they're making that the issue. Flip down to chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1, round 2, Eliphaz steps into the batter's box. And he responds, verse 2, Shall a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Now now the gloves are starting to come off here. What was the east wind? Well, that was where the east was the desert. So the east wind was the hot air that came in from the desert. So what, what is he saying? Job, we love you, man, but you're a windbag. You're full of it. You're full of hot air. In fact, we even have English expressions that, that roughly correspond to what they're saying here. And we're going, where, where are these, where's the compassion of his friends? Now, we know they came a great distance to be with their friend. One of the geographic references, we know that one of the friends came from at least 100 miles away. So clearly they care about him, but their manner is hurtful. Can you see that? Their manner is sarcastic and hurtful. In fact, Job's going to say in chapter 6, verse 14, for the despairing man, there should be kindness 
from his friend. Look at this. Flip over to chapter 16. Verse 4. Chapter 16, verse 4. Job responding to Eliphaz. Listen to what he says. He says, I too could speak like you if I were in your place. Let me translate for you. That's easy for you to say because you're not in my sandals, are you? So we see that sometimes they're forgetting about the situation. They're getting sarcastic. How is this affecting Job? You're in chapter 16. Back up to verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry, comforters, are you all? We would say, y'all. Is there no limit to windy words? Or what plagues that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and I could shake my head at you. So we can see this is not having a good effect on Mr. Job here, is it? Flip down to chapter 21. Just flip the page over. Look at chapter 21 and verse 2 as Job continues his response. Job 21 verse 2. Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak and then after I have spoken, you can mock me. You see what's going on? They're they're getting antagonistic. They're they're having an argument. And that's so important, right? There's a great proverb that says this and it's good for us to remember. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Do you know that? That's what's going on here. They're trying to minister to him, but it's turning into an antagonistic argument. They're they're arguing with one another. They're they're trying to show that one another in the wrong. They're they're quarreling. And it's not having a good effect. Now, Now, you know that sometimes suffering people can be very self-focused, can't they? They can be needy people, demanding people. They they can be unappreciative of your efforts. And you know how this works. If you're trying to help somebody, especially that's a family member, man, there are dynamics, there are functions of family relationships that are unmatched in any other relationship, aren't there? So, So maybe you're trying to care for your parents. Maybe you're trying to help your handicapped child. Maybe... Maybe you're trying to come alongside a hurting uh, uncle or cousin or something like that. And yet there are those unresolved family issues. There are those, those hurts from the past that, that have never been addressed. And all those things come in and affect how we are trying to help one another. And that reminds us right out of the gate here as we see, we need to be very, very careful to guard our own heart as we minister to others, especially those in suffering. In fact, we need to really invite God to examine our heart. We want to ask God to work in us first, and then we can go well-equipped to help our friend who's suffering. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. You remember the verse, right? He says, he says first deal with your own heart first, then you will see clearly to help your brother. And that's exactly the program here. Addressing your own heart is the prerequisite to helping others. That's the first thing we need to see here in learning about ministry to others. There's a second thing, and we touched on this last time, but I want to come back to it because we just scratched the surface. And that's this. We need to remember 
that we counsel out of our theology. We need to remember that we counsel out of our theology. Go back to chapter 4, where we started, Job chapter 4. Go back to Eliphaz, his first speech, his first interaction with Job. Now, I want you to look at this and think, as I read this, where is he getting his counsel? What is guiding his advice to Mr. Job? Look at chapter 4. Eliphaz steps up, verse 6. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Flip down to chapter 5, verse 6. He's going to say the same thing. Chapter 5, verse 6. Eliphaz is still speaking to Job. Chapter 5, verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust. Translation, your bad things didn't come out of thin air. Nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble, and sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God. I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Skip down to verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. Now, what's he saying? What is his explanation for Job's affliction? Talk to me here. Yeah, you've sinned, right? There's some sin in your life. God is punishing you for your sin. And so you just need to go to him, confess it, and all will be better. And yet, we as the readers can already see that he's wrong. You say, how does that? Well, because the book of Job has already shown us that there is not a one-size-fits-all explanation for your suffering. Just look at this. It's on your notes there. We've learned certainly that suffering does come because of personal sin. I mean, Eliphaz is right. Sometimes we do suffer because of our own sin. But notice what we've seen also just in the first two chapters of the book. We suffer because of the sin of others. Who was it that came in and killed the servants and, and burned the crops? And it was the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, wasn't it? Other people were a cause of Job's affliction, weren't they? We've also seen that suffering, because, uh, suffering comes because of a broken world. Accidents, weather, sicknesses. We've seen that. The fire of God from heaven, meaning the lightning that, that consumed the crops. Sometimes suffering happens because we live in a broken world where accidents and suffering and the the general degradation of everything continues, this side of Genesis 3. We also learned in Job chapter 1 and 2 that, that, that really what starts all this affliction in Job's life is an accusation that Satan makes to God. And that's something that, of course, the, the, the people in, in the book don't understand, but we as the readers understand, don't we? That Job's affliction is not primarily about him. It's about God's plan to thwart Satan and show his accusation to be wrong. And then, of course, the final thing we've seen so far in the book of Job is that suffering ultimately comes because of God's plan. And that's what everybody thinks in the book. Everybody ultimately sees that God's invisible hand as he brings and orchestrates his plan is behind 
all things in this life, including suffering. But see, that's not the theology of the friends, is it? They, they, they pick that first thing, and that, that's their only answer. Their only answer is that you're suffering because of personal sin. Now, we talked about this last time, and, and you, need, you need to get this, okay? Um, here, here's the theology of the friends. It's called retributive theology. It's very simple to understand. God's a vending machine, right? You do what's right, God blesses you. You do what's wrong, God punishes you. And uh, that is the lens through which they are understanding Job and trying to counsel him. And, and that, that sets up the drama for the, the rest of the chapter. But, but, we, but don't miss this, okay? We counsel out of our theology. We give advice based on what we really believe. And, and don't let me trip you up with that word theology. You may say, oh, I don't know any theology. It, your theology is your worldview, it's what you believe about life. It's what you value. It's how you, it's how you uh, look at the world. It's your outlook. It's your perception. Uh, the Bible calls that theology because it answers ultimate questions. But it, it's that worldview from which we counsel and give advice to other people. And because the worldview of the friends is wrong, they have a, a one-size-fits-all explanation for Job's suffering, they're going to spend all of the time between chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 31 to try to convince Job that there must be some secret sin in his life and he just needs to come out with it and and go to God and repent and then God will make his life better. In fact, these guys get so desperate. Let me tell you what they do. In chapter 22, as Job keeps saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, they start speculating. They they actually say, Job, we saw you not provide for some widows one time. We we saw you kind of diss some some poor people and not provide for their needs. And, And so they start to speculate on what the sin might be behind Job's affliction. And on the other side, Job's going to insist all these chapters that he's innocent and he's going to try to make sense of his his suffering about why God might be punishing him. And eventually he's going to accuse God of being unjust for afflicting him without cause. Now, it's worth noting that his friends are not all wrong, are they? They're not entirely wrong. In fact, usually when we receive well-meaning but misguided counsel from other people, it's usually not that it's all wrong. It's usually that it's mixed and there are some bad things infiltrating it, right? I mean, they genuinely care about Job. That's obvious. They do continue to insist that God is just and he's not being unfair. That's good, right? They're, They're trying to say God's not doing the wrong thing. And they do encourage Job to turn to God in his affliction. And we can say, you know what, those are good things, and we should definitely follow those as an example. But at at their core, their theology is wrong. Now, if you were noticing as we read this, what, what can we say is the source of their misguided theology? Did you catch it? What are they basing their belief system upon? Well, if you missed it, just look back at chapter 6, verse 8. According to what I have seen, right? Or verse 27 of the chapter, the same chapter ends. We investigated it. We figured this out. Here we are telling you about it. And that's all there is. The reason their counsel is wrong is because their theology is wrong. And the reason their theology is wrong is because they're basing their belief system on their own experience. Instead of the Word of God. Now, experience is not all bad in many areas of life, right? When you go for surgery, you don't want the surgeon to walk in and say, well, this will be a first for both of us. 
right? You've seen the commercial that's running right now, right? You know, how's the surgeon? He's okay, right? That's not what you want. We want experience when it comes to medical care. You don't want to get on an airline plane and have the captain come on and say, this is my first flight in this equipment. No, ever. That you don't want, you want to hear that, right? You want experienced airline captains. You want experienced teachers, right? You want experienced auto mechanics. You want experienced plumbers. In most vocations of life, we want experience because experience is a good thing. But when it comes to the ultimate issues of life, when it comes to life's most important issues and questions, we need a source. We need a foundation that is more reliable, more sure, more faithful, true. We we need a God-breathed source, don't we? And that is only and finally found in the Scriptures. So their theology is wrong. That leads to them giving bad counsel. I said this last time. I'll say it again. Your counsel is only as good as your theology, which is why we all ought to be very, very, very interested in knowing, learning, studying, and renewing our minds in the Word of God every day because that's how we live and that's how we counsel. And especially with suffering people, we need to be very careful, don't we? Because suffering people are often very vulnerable, they're unstable, they can be easily manipulated. And if we're not very careful, our misguided beliefs can actually hurt the person we love that we're trying to care for. Now let me, let me just demonstrate this, okay? Can I demonstrate the, the, the pain that can happen when we get our theology wrong? Flip over to chapter 8. Bildad steps up. Chapter 8. Job's second friend that comes in. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? Talking to Job. And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Hang on. Verse 4. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Let me translate that for you. Job, your kids got what was coming to them. Can you imagine how painful that must have been to hear that from your friend? You know, you can attack me and that's one thing. You attack my kids, that's another thing, isn't it? Very, very painful. So their bad theology was leading to a wrong interpretation of their affliction and it is resulting in disaster. But you know what? Their bad theology doesn't just lead to wrongly understanding his situation. It also leads to them pointing to the wrong solution. Uh, Notice, if you're still in chapter 8, look at verse 5. Listen to what Bildad says Job should do about it. If you will seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. So what's Bildad's solution? Job, just turn to God, acknowledge your sin, confess it, and what's God going to do? He's going to bring all those blessings back, right? He's going to make your life great, and you're going to be happy, and things are going to go well, and you're going to prosper. What does that sound like? What did Satan say? Does Job fear God for nothing? 
You see that? See how that connects? The, the friends are giving satanic counsel because they're saying the motive to fix your problem is go to God and he'll make your life better. And let's not forget to keep in mind what's really at stake in all this. Chapter 6, verse 14. Just listen. Just listen. Job, Job says this to his friends. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. As Job hears this counsel and he's now defending himself, he's, he's getting sarcastic, he's getting bitter, he's getting frustrated with his friends. He says, guys, will you stop you're tempting me to abandon my faith. We need to remember that we have the potential through our, through our wrong counsel to steer people away from God even to the point that they abandon their faith. You know, our genuine love for sufferers often leaves us to get often leads us to give bad counsel because we want to see their suffering end and we want to give them some sort of hope and encouragement but listen if we don't get that right we are hurting them we can't let emotion we can't let life experience we can't let cultural norms we can't let even good intentions dictate our counsel to others without disaster happening Love for God and for our friend demand that the scriptures drive our counsel or we risk doing untold spiritual damage to our friend. So we need to, we need to learn, guys. We need to huddle up and say as we come alongside sufferers, we need to learn and glean from the book of Job to watch our heart, to watch our theology and remember what is actually at stake in conversations that we, not, we may not consider to be very significant. Okay, that's number one. Let me give you the second dynamic of suffering that we're going to see here this morning. Now let's talk about the, the vulnerabilities of us as we go through suffering, the vulnerabilities of the sufferer himself, herself. Let's recognize what can happen in our own suffering. Okay, we've looked at the friends. Now let's look back at Job. Have you already seen with me what's going on here? It's gone from caring to arguing. It's gone from arguing to getting ugly. It's it's turned into a debate. And, you know, it's good to remember um, that when we're suffering or when we are trying to help those in suffering, that we are more vulnerable to respond in ungodly ways, aren't we? We're more vulnerable to respond in sinful ways. We've already seen that already, right? We've seen sarcasm. We've seen sarcasm from everybody, right? You know, you're a windbag, you're the east wind, windy words. And you know what sarcasm really is? It's cloaked bitterness. It's acceptable Bitterness in dialogue. Look at chapter 9. I just want to, want to show you some of the ways that sufferers struggle when affliction comes, when especially pain is chronic and, it, and it's not going away. I mean, look at this. We, we've seen hopelessness and despair last week in chapter 3. Let, let me show you a few more. Look at chapter 9 as Job responds to Bildad in chapter 9, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. 
Job speaking, Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, then he mocks the despair of the innocent. What do we see there? We see his hopelessness. If God's going to punish the guilty and the guiltless the same, what's the point? We see his bitterness coming out toward God. We see his anger, his frustration, his his wrestling to try to understand this. Look down at verse 28 of the same chapter. He says, I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. You ever walked alongside somebody with a chronic illness, chronic pain? If you've had the privilege of doing that, you know that one of the things that people in chronic suffering struggle with the most is fear. And often it's fear that the pain will never go away. And this is just something I'm going to have to live with. That's what Job is expressing here. He's saying, I'm afraid that this pain I'm feeling right now that, that, is, that is impossible to bear might never go away. And that spirals him further down in his depression and in his anger and in his hopelessness. But but I want you to see that these sinful responses, these emotions actually connect back to a much more important issue in Job's life. In fact, I'll I'll just tease you a little bit and say it like this. Your emotions reveal your God. Your emotions reveal your God. What we see here, these emotions that that Job is struggling with arise from his perception of God. Let, Let me show you this. The second thing, we are prone to distortions of God in our suffering. We are prone to distortions of God in our suffering. Look back at chapter 6. Let's pick up Job's, Job's part of this uh, conversation now. And let, uh, As I read this, I'm going I'm to do something that will tempt you to tune out. Okay, so, so stay with me. This is so important that you get this. I'm, I'm going to go through a couple of longer sections because I want you to feel how Job is expressing this morphing of God away from a biblical view. And, and so as I read this, I, I want you to be thinking, how is he perceiving God? How is he thinking about God? Okay, so you think about that, and I will read chapter 6, verse 2. Then Job answers, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Job says, my pain, my grief is so heavy. If you scooped up all the sand in the oceans with some cosmic excavator and you put them on this side of the scales, my grief would be heavier. That's something of the pain and grief that this man is experiencing. Therefore, back to the text, he says, my words have been rash, right? He says, maybe I've said some things too quickly. Verse 4, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. How's he viewing God? God is shooting at me with poisoned arrows. 
Look down at verse 8. Oh, that my, my request might come to pass and that God would grant me my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me? Would that he would loose his hand and cut me off? That goes back to chapter 3. Lord, just let me die. I can't handle this anymore. Verse 10. But it is still my consolation and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Now stop right there. That is a very important admission. Because in chapter 1, we see him trusting God and submitting to God's ways in his life as unspeakably painful as they are. And now we see his heart, now we see his trust starting to slide to grab onto something else, right? Where is his hope? Where is his trust according to this verse? It's in his own righteousness. I know I'm not doing anything wrong. Flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, Job speaks again. Is not man forced to labor on the earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man as a, a slave who pants for shade and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages? So I am allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed to me. By whom? Who is appointing nights of trouble to Mr. Job? God is. Look at verse 4. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. Isn't that the experience we have in suffering, especially someone in a chronic... They can't sleep, they can't get comfortable, they can't get a good night's rest. Verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and, and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and, and, and come to an end without hope. Down to verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you... Who's he talking to? He's talking to God. Then you frighten me with dreams and terrify, terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than pain. He says, Lord, I can't even get a good night's rest. It's so hard. And then when I sleep, you afflict me with these bad dreams. And all I want to do is end my life to stop the pain. Down to verse 16. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? It's kind of graphic. What he's saying is, Lord, will you not give me a moment to catch my breath, even swallow my own saliva in the midst of my affliction? Will you, will you, will you give me a moment Verse 20, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. What's happening to his God? 
his view of God is disintegrating in the air. There are pieces falling off his faith. Flip over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, Job continues. Chapter 9, verse 1, then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If, if one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart, mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? And, and then Job's going to give some examples of God's power. Down to verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why, if he cries out to God, would he not believe God is answering? Listen. Because he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it's a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can sustain him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless, but I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It's all the same. It's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked, and his scourge kills suddenly, and then he mocks the despair of the innocent. Verse 29, I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man, so that I may answer him, that that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me, and then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. Look down to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7. According to your knowledge, God, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Your hands fashioned me and made me altogether, and yet you would destroy me. He says, God, you know I'm innocent. You know I'm not guilty, and let you, you continue to afflict me. You know I'm dust. You created me, and yet you aim to destroy me. Flip down to chapter 16, verse 6. Chapter 16, verse 6. As he spirals down further, he says in verse 6, If I speak, my pain is not lessened. If I hold back, what is left me? But now he has exhausted me. You have laid waste all my company. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. Verse 9, his anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary, God, glares at me. They have gaped at me with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with their contempt. Talking about his friends now. They have masked themselves against me. Verse 11, and then God hands me over to the ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but then he shattered me and he has grasped me by the neck. He's shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. I've sewed sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and yet deep darkness is on my eyes. Verse 12. 
in his mind, God has become a monster. Listen very closely. Our unsanctified emotions in the midst of suffering are blasphemous artists when it comes to the picture of God that they paint. What would cause Job to believe these horrible things about God? How can God be so distorted in his mind? How can he go from that chapter 1, affirming his goodness, affirming his grace, affirming trust in him, to this? There's only one answer. It's his heart. It's that spiritual part of him. His heart is not where it needs to be. Listen, he is so set on his own on his own innocence, he is so convinced of his own evaluation that he distorts God and condemns God and claims that God is being unjust. He's trusting in his own evaluation instead of trusting God. And that's what is behind all this. We can slide from trusting God to trusting ourself if we're not careful. Now listen, when we trust ourselves instead of trusting God, this is very important, you get this, we will interpret God through the lens of our pain rather than understanding our pain through the lens of the true character of God. You've got to see that. That, that's, That's what we are tempted to do. We tend to interpret God through the lens of our pain instead of interpreting our pain through the true lens of who we know God really is as we discover him in the pages of Scripture. And Job is so insistent that he is right and God is wrong, he comes up with an idea. What do you do with monsters? What do you do with people that are helplessly unjust? What do you do with criminals? You take them to court, don't you? Did you hear the language? Job says, oh, I wish that he was a man like us because then I could take him to court, but there's no umpire between us. And then he, he voices again later on the thought of court. And in chapter 13, he goes, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty and I would desire to argue with God. Chapter 13, verse 17. Listen to this. This is his case. This is the case that he would bring against God. He wants to take God to court. Listen to this, verse 17. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now, I have prepared my case, meaning against God. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And then he outlines his case. Job wants to take God to court. Job wants to put God on trial, to plead his case, to vindicate his name, and to expose the injustice of his God. Deep breath. Wow. And let me save you some time. In chapters 23 through the end of chapter 31 is Job's defense to God. In fact, chapter 34 is literally a rant. It's his final speech, his closing arguments before the prosecution rests. 
And we have a conclusion. Okay, flip over to chapter 32. Chapter 32. Lest you think we are way off in our understanding of Mr. Job. Chapter 32, verse verse 1. We're going to hear from the narrator. Now, in biblical story, it's very important that we understand that the narrator speaks God's interpretation of the story. The narrator has divine omniscience, at God's perspective, if you will. So when the narrator speaks in biblical stories, that's when we really want to pay attention because it tells us what God thinks about what's going on. Okay, so let's find out. Narrator speaks, chapter 32, verse 1. Mr. Narrator, take it away. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And that leads us to our third danger. We can find ourselves standing in judgment of God. Our own commitment to our own hearts, our own perception, what we think is best leads to a distorted view of God, leads to these ungodly emotions, and at its base is the creature standing in judgment of the Creator Himself. Now, do you have a picture in your notes? Would you look at that picture with me? Let me step over here so I can point. Um, Where was Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2? He was over here, wasn't he? He was praising God in great affliction. He was trusting God in unspeakable pain. He was telling his wife how they ought to respond, how they ought to trust God, remembering his faithfulness and his promises. His faith in God was on display. But what has happened in the ongoing, unrelenting nature of his affliction? What's happened? He's turned... And all of a sudden, he's forgetting the very same things he was remembering in those first couple of chapters. The questioning, you notice the questioning begins? All those questions we looked at last week? Now there's all these questions. That leads to accusation, which leads to contending. Mr. Job has gone from praising to contending. And the emotions, the bottom half there, are merely the illustration. They're, they're the warning system. That trust has gone from faith in God to faith in self because your emotions reveal where your trust is and who your God is. You know, the most shocking part about suffering is not what it does to you, but what it reveals about you. What is inside this man of God? And we look and what we see is a deep-seated pride that is so self-confident that it will distort even the character of God and condemn His ways in order to defend His own evaluation and to justify Himself. How about us? Can we see that our quiet grumbling in our affliction and our angry outbursts in our suffering are actually divine subpoenas against a God that we think is unjust and wrong and not doing what He should. Mr. Job is not in a good place, is he? His God is an unjust monster. His faith is in himself. His friends have done nothing but create strife. 
He longs for death that won't come. He has asked a hundred questions that have gone unanswered. He demands for a trial that will render God guilty and vindicate his name, but he knows it won't happen. And even if it does, he's too afraid of God to attend. And in all of this, in all of this, God seems deafeningly quiet. Where is he? What is he doing? And Job... You know, it's sad because Job, if you've been paying attention, he interprets God's silence as God's indifference, that he doesn't care. Or at one point he says, well, God must be hiding. He doesn't really want to show his face. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't, he doesn't want to intervene in the situation. Let's, let's remember that when God is silent, it does not mean that he doesn't care. In fact, God is exceedingly active in his silence. God is just as active, just as productive in his silence as he is when he speaks with his voice. And what I want you to see is that the same invisible hand of God behind Job's affliction is the same invisible hand that is working in silence. God is doing something in the midst of what's going on here. Can I show you? Look at this. Here's your last key. Embrace God's redemptive purposes in suffering. Embrace God's redemptive purposes in suffering. Let's not misunderstand the silence of God to mean He's not at work. Oh, brothers and sisters, He is at work. Look at what He's doing. He's exposing our true theology. He's exposing what we really believe and what we really value. He is revealing our heart motives. He is uncovering our true trust. What are we really relying on in the midst of our pain? He is illuminating our functional Savior. What what was Job's quote-unquote functional Savior? His hope for a trial, right? That he's acquitted, that, that God is found guilty. He is God is spotlighting eternal topics. Do you see that? Do you see how he is putting the things that we need to really be thinking about in life? Who God is, who we're trusting, where's our heart, what our emotions are saying. He is drawing us into dialogue. Do you see that? He is drawing Job into dialogue with him. And he is demonstrating his amazing love. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Keith, I'm not seeing a lot of love in this book. Just remember, remember, the same doctor that surgically removes the malicious tumor from your body and saves your life is the same doctor that has to bring a diagnosis and bring and reveal to you the hard and difficult news of your condition. And that's what the great physician is doing. He is coming to Job with a horrible diagnosis but not so that he can shame Job, ultimately, but so that he can heal him. Do you see that? That is what God is doing in this situation. What is your suffering revealing about you? And what picture of God is emerging in the midst of your affliction? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this story that opens our eyes to what you're doing, even in your silence. 
Help us to have eyes that will see these things and a heart that will trust you even in the darkness, even when you seem to be ignoring us and to remember who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.